Good morning, good morning, good morning. We're going to get started here right away. Well, we've already had a great, great weekend. In fact, uh, I, I anticipate some increasing testimonies of healing. You know, sometimes some of these will materialize immediately. Sometimes we won't even realize that we're healed for days or maybe into next week before you realize, hey, that thing's not happening anymore. And uh, so, regardless, we, we praise the Lord. Amen? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I just want to say as we begin today, we're going to worship God. But the Bible says in Hebrews, he says that God has provided a way for you to draw near to God. What's that way? How has God made it possible for you to draw near to God? The blood of Jesus. You know, so many times you can come into church, you can be feeling guilty, you can be feeling distant from God, you can be feeling like maybe you don't deserve a touch from God. Well, I'm, I'm telling you right now, you don't deserve a touch from God. But regardless, God wants to touch you because his love is just that great. And so he made it possible for us to come near to him without personal merit, without us establishing a justification for us coming near to him. We don't have to justify ourselves. We don't have to pay the way. We don't have to carry the load of guilt or shame. The blood of Jesus it says, gives us boldness to enter in by the new and living way. And so I want to encourage you today, come near to God. Because if there's any hope of you escaping any of the things in your life, it's going to come from the light of his presence. It's going to come from who he is shining into your being and changing you. And so we don't draw near when we have done well. We draw near because he's good. Amen. God is seated on his throne, receiving worship. He is the center of the known universe. He is the center of the unknown universe. And he deserves our complete affection this morning. And so, God, we want to say that we turn our hearts towards you. You are the author of life. You are the one who supplies everything that we need. All things necessary for everything are provided in you, are in the knowledge of you. So we say, God, we want you and we need you. And we will draw near this morning by the blood of Jesus. God, you are great, you are great, and you are greatly to be praised. We declare it today. You are great, you are great, you are greatly to be praised. You are great. You are great. You are greatly to be praised. Let's worship him this morning. Just continue with this sound. As we are making this sound, as we are revering his name, I see in my spirit a grand door opening and a divine procession beginning to come out of that door. Angels and beings of multitudes of different kinds, all declaring, all representing the glory and the majesty of the one who had come. This is the divine procession. 
We say, come Lord, come Lord, come Lord, come Lord. Lord, we want to say that you are the glorious one. And the earth will tremble and fear the name of the Lord. And you will be magnified and you will be glorified in every corner of the globe. And we say, worthy, worthy, worthy are you. Worthy are you, O Lord. Amen. You know, the, the picture I get this morning, and I related to it earlier, is a one of procession. You know, there's a verse in Revelations that says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And it begs the question, do they say anything else? Yes, they do. But the heart of desire in worship is, Lord, come. Proximity. I want to be closer. I want to be nearer. I need what is intrinsically a part of who you are. And so the summary of all the earth's worship and the desire of the bride is come, 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 come. And when we're praying your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, it is the same desire expressed. But then it, the question is next is how is he coming? And I believe that God is establishing thrones of worship around the earth. I believe he's establishing portals, gateways where he has been welcomed and that he is establishing or reestablishing ancient paths where the Holy One and the entourage of heaven made its way from those high places into the realms of the earth. And that's what churches are meant to be, the gate of heaven. Churches are meant to be the doors, the access points for eternity to touch earth. And every time we get into this place of that sound, it's, it's almost like I see this grand, grand, uh, lengthy passageway where it's like people waiting for a parade. And when that parade begins, they begin to cheer and they begin to holler as the, as the different floats make their way and they, they celebrate. And the more awe in, in, with each, each, each float that passes, the one, the, the one after is greater than the one before. And I see this entourage of heaven just preceding the majesty and the fullness of who he is. But this anticipation and this faith and this worship makes the procession possible. And again, it's an expression of saying, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Come and rule in the midst of us, Son of God. Son of God. Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords come come and rule extend your scepter extend your hand establish here in this place honor and glory and power to your name honor and glory and power to your name Hallelujah.
Thank you, Father. We want to be ahead of the curve. And everybody's looking for the next business thing that's ahead of the curve. Musicians are looking for the next sound uh, to be ahead of the curve, to make their... Let me tell you, Jesus will be worshipped in an abandoned, full way. And I want to be ahead of the curve. I want to, no holds barred, be giving him glory, giving him glory. And I pray that God, Holy Spirit, you would establish the throne of worship in this place and in our hearts, that we could give you the glory due your name. The glory due your name. Can you say amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's been a great weekend already. And uh, we've invited in a special guest speaker for the last three days. And and, uh, a good number of you have made it a point to be here Friday night and Saturday night. And how many of you have enjoyed the ministry of Mark DuPont? You know, we've had the privilege over the years of having different uh, ministries here speaking into the uh, the DNA and the of what God is doing in this part of the country and in this church, and we're uh, we're we're happy to welcome him as part of our family. And so, part of what we're trying to do in training is getting individual believers operating in the knowledge of God, so that when you're out there, even if you're doing some mundane work that has nothing to do directly with your faith, you are still releasing that scent, that knowledge of God, that flavor of Christ that brings life and is the engine for all increase. All innovation, all uh, industrious activity in a community. So anyway, so great to have Mark here. So we're going to give him the floor. We're going to give him some space. And just, you know, pull on the grace that's on him. He, he's, uh, he's a man who's called by God, and he's, he's got, God has established him in some things that I believe we need. And so we want to just say, pray with me right now. Father, we want to say that we receive from the vessel, the man of God, Lord, we receive from the deposit that you've put in him and the, the sphere of authority you've given him in the kingdom things. Lord, we pray that the seeds of who he is through you will be deposited into this house and will produce fruit in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, Mark. Bless you. Good morning. Okay, good, good. All right, before we jump into the message, uh, just a couple of very quick uh, testimonies, I think, and uh, I'll warn you in advance if I call you up, uh, my number one rule with testimonies is never, never, never surrender the mic. So this is not your opportunity to preach. (laughs) But where is uh, Matthew at? Is he here? Come on up here, man. You have, uh, I think if I remember right, you said you've never had arches. Is that right? Been flat-footed my entire life. Um, I've actually had to have arch supports in all my shoes, and when I wear sandals and stuff, like my feet will ache because I don't have any arch supports at all. So, what happened to you last night during ministry? Um, when I was getting prayed for, I felt a, like a jolt in my feet, and I've got arches in my feet for the first time ever. Uh, and how old are you? Thirty-one. 31, you've never had arches, and now you've got some arches there. Yeah. And even in my knees, 
Um, I've just felt cartilage and stuff growing back in my knees overnight, even still today, it's ongoing. Um, my knees have never been really bad, but it's gotten to the point where it's uncomfortable to walk sometimes. I'll have to walk around like shaking my knees out, like I need to just get something shaken out of them. Um, and ever since I got prayed for last night, I haven't had any discomfort in my knees at all. I'm walking, I've got arches in my feet, like God's doing something awesome. So thank you. Praise God. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And there's another gentleman here. We're not going to go into extreme details, uh, but uh, God, uh, why don't you come on up, sir? What is your name? Trevor? Arthur. Arthur. Okay. Two syllables. I got that right. <laughs> but you've actually had to have, you told me, a couple of operations in the past for this problem, and recently you've been suffering again. And yeah. so what's new after getting prayer Friday night? Uh, since Friday night, uh, that pain, because this condition causes me back pain. And twice in the past, I've had it operated, uh, something taken out, and the pain went away. Friday night, since Friday night, uh, the pain I suffered all last week uh, has been gone. 100%? Yep. Great. So, and, and we won't go into details, but everything else is moving smoothly? Yep. Everything's <laughs> moving perfectly. Great. Thank you. <laughs> uh, we've had... Uh, We've had in our ministry several documented uh, testimonies of people healed of Colon's disease, but the tricky part when people healed of Colon's disease is editing the testimony. So it <laughs> one guy in South Africa, I didn't know what he was going to testify, but he came up to testify. He'd been healed of years of Colon's of Crohn's disease, and I said, well, what's dramatically different for you? And he said, well, I no longer have to carry toilet paper with me everywhere I go. And I thought, okay, we'll stop right there. Okay, as we jump into the message, um, I want to do a, a very brief exercise, and I want you to take about 10 seconds, and I want you to look around the room and look at someone you don't know very well. Look back, look at two or three people, and make a quick assessment of them. I know the Bible says not to judge, but we're just assessing, we're not judging. Okay, now, and... How many of you tried not to laugh when you looked at other people? <laughs> but uh, here's my question. Who exactly did you see? Do you see a male, female, someone tall, short, skinny, maybe not so skinny, someone sharply dressed, someone that uh, was still half asleep when they picked out their wardrobe this morning? Uh, who exactly did you see? Or did you see someone as David described people that we would say today are the body of Christ, when he said, Behold the majestic ones in whom God delights. How many of you know we're to walk by faith, not by sight? And what that means is we don't assess life by what we understand the natural, but we seldom carry that over to not assessing one another according to what we currently see. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he said, if anyone, say if anyone, if anyone, meaning not only the people you look at that you think really have it together, are really spiritually mature, but including those people who call Jesus Christ as Lord but are still struggling with the basics, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. I want to talk about what I think is the most essential 
paradigm shifts that needs to take place in the body of Christ today, and that is how we relate to one another, but how we relate to one another first comes out of the foundation of how do we perceive one another. On one side of the spectrum, there is uh, the spirit of religion that just watches over everybody carefully and is quick to criticize, quick to judge, and that's not where we're going. But on the other side of the coin, there's this thing that's popped up again the last five years or so that some people call greasy grace or cheap grace that is a false biblical perception of grace because some, some people in this camp, they perceive grace as, well, we're saved, so now we have the freedom to do whatever we want and God doesn't see it. That actually did not work out too well for Ananias and Sapphira that were part of the New Testament church. And so biblically, I believe we have to define grace as grace is the empowering that comes by the Holy Spirit, but also through the Word of God to be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. And in contrast to that is what we would call unsanctified grace that actually enables people to keep up with problems and keep going in the uh, paths of destruction and different things. There's a, a story of a church meeting that happened about 40 years ago in Los Angeles. True story. And in this church, every Wednesday night, they had a classic prayer meeting where the leaders would pray for some things for the city, for the church, for the nation. And then anybody at any point, if there was an opportunity, could get, stand up and they could shout out a prayer for, you know, a relative or the city, whatever it was. But there was one man in the church, and he was an on-again, off-again alcoholic. And for about six months a year, he'd be doing really good, walking with the Lord in fellowship, and then he'd fall off the wagon, and no one would see him for a couple months. He'd be drunk as a skunk. And when he would begin to come out of that and start going back to church, he would show up at these Wednesday night prayer meetings, and he would wait for his opportunity to stand up and shout, Oh God, oh God, clean the cobwebs out of my life. Just clean out the cobwebs out of my life. And this cycle went on for years. And in one of those seasons where he was coming back to the Lord after being drunk for a couple of months, he stood up and yelled out, Oh God, clean out the cobwebs out of my life. Get rid of the spider webs. One of the elders had had enough. And the elder stood up and said, No, God, don't do it. Kill the spider. And uh, I think the reality is sometimes we just want to, you know, bless people to continue on when the Lord is saying, No, my heart for you is to be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. And therefore, the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, meaning the ongoing work of sanctification and consecration in our lives to be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. But it is so essential when we are in the process of dealing with certain issues and problems in our life from time to time, that we're aware of how God the Father sees us. He sees the current problems, and he does not ignore the current problems. He wants to deal with those. He deals with those as a father. I love what it says in Proverbs 3, when Solomon said, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. And when God has taken us through a season of discipline and correction, it's not because he's against us, it's not because he wants to destroy us, but because he's so much for us, he wants to bring about this healing work of freedom in Christ Jesus. And so he sees the problems, but he also sees past that. I told the story the other night 
about when Jesus first met Peter. And this is found in John chapter 1. And Peter is first brought to Jesus by his brother. And before Peter can say a word, Jesus prophesies over him. And he says, right now your name is Simon, but you shall be called Cephas. And Simon, in the root Hebrew, it means, in essence, one easily broken, one easily swayed, rather fragile. And this really speaks of the heart of Peter, because outwardly, he may have been a tough, buff fisherman. He may have looked aggressive. He may have looked really strong. But inwardly, Peter lived with a very dramatic fear of man and fear of what people thought of him. His life was governed by that. We know that because three years after walking with Jesus every day, he denied Jesus three times in one night out of fear of what people would thought, out of fear of repercussion. But Jesus, knowing that Peter would deny him three times in that one night, he chose to look past that. He did not ignore the problem, but he looked past that, and he said, you shall be called Cephas. And it's interesting, Cephas, that we translate as Peter, means almost the direct opposite of what Simon means. And Cephas actually means a small rock. Rather than one easily swayed, easily broken, one very strong. And actually, he was prophesying, Peter, when I'm done with you, you're going to be like me because I am the rock of salvation and you're going to be like me when I'm done with you. And we know that even though Peter denied the Lord three times in that one night, his night of Jesus' rest, a short time later on the day of Pentecost, it was Peter that stood up and preached the gospel, and thousands got saved that day, and the church really began that day. And that's how God deals with us as a loving father, bringing correction, but calling us past our problems because he sees past our problems into the destiny he has for us. I was pausing, thinking one person might say hallelujah or amen, but we'll keep going, and where are we? Uh, somewhere in Edmonton, Canada. So, corporately, how do we perceive the church as an institution or, as, as the Bible calls us, the eternally redeemed of the Lord, the triumphant bride of Christ? I'm not just talking about how do we think about things in the grand scheme of things, but when you're coming together for like a home group meeting or a time of prayer or socializing, or when you're just brought together in social situations with Christians, do we analyze one another according to our current weaknesses, foibles, or past mistakes? It's interesting, in some churches, I think the, uh, the word repentance is used as the R word because nobody likes it because, you know, the visiting evangelist comes to town or the prophet and they'd identify some problems and call them out and people come up and they're, they're weeping and, you know, they're grabbing this Kleenex, snot's pouring out. That's always a sign of revival when you need Kleenex. I'm looking, oh, you got Kleenex there and this is a good church. But my question is sometimes, and, and there are times, and I know God has used me for this in the past to identify certain strongholds that God wants to break, and we'll call people up for that. But my question sometimes is when people are responding in that situation, are they responding because they've really been convicted in their heart about grieving the Holy Spirit, quenching the Holy Spirit, and outside the will of God, or is it a thing of shaming that's taking place? And, for example, uh, there's uh, one of the heart messages God gave me that I've, I've preached around the world is a message called the beauty of sexual purity. And when I preach on that, obviously, in any given crowd, you notice how quiet it just got. 
wow, man, maybe we should do an altar call. No, I'm messing with you. But uh, when I preach on that, we always do an altar call because in any given crowd, there's going to be X number of people that unfortunately are not faithful in their marriage and involved in pornography and other different things. But when I give an invitation to repent of that, I always mix it with some other things, like maybe if there's bitterness of the heart or unforgiveness. Because unfortunately, if you call out something really dramatic, we don't mean to, but everybody will remember, oh, that's the guy that went forward for that sin, or that's the lady. that, And, and we don't mean to, but we get these perceptions of one another. And it's interesting In Revelation 17, verse 14, it talks about the warfare against Jesus. But it says, These will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are the called, the chosen, and the faithful. This is how God sees us. Despite our current imperfections, he sees us as the called, the chosen, and the faithful. John wrote, and about three of you are excited, but they're always on this side of the room. This is kind of like the evangelical side. This is the Pentecostal side. So, sorry, you're just, uh, wow, Mark, you're on that side of the room, you know? Oh, well. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Verse 11, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. How many of you know that biblically speaking, love is not a noun, it's a verb, it's an action? John also said, do not love one another in word or tongue, meaning love is not just a vibe, it's not just an attitude, it's much more than a theology, it's much more than just saying nice words, but love is action. Whether that's, you know, things like what you were doing, like cleaning the trash out for the neighborhood, or sharing the gospel with somebody, or praying for a sick person, or helping out a neighbor that's going through a difficult time. When we do those things in the name of Christ Jesus, not only to the world, but to one another, that is the reality of love. Now, if you've been here the last two nights, you know I I love uh, speaking on the prophetic and healing and miracles. I love moving in even more than that. But the reality is Jesus never said they will know you are my disciples by your miracles. He never said they will know you are my disciples by your deep prophetic revelation. He said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. You know, it's been kind of a buzz phrase or buzzword in a lot of churches for 10 years now about talking about developing a culture of honor. But let me tell you, the quickest way of developing a culture of honor in a church is by learning to prophetically see the potential in one another. And that means sometimes when we're aware of current problems in one another, as well as aware of current problems in ourselves, looking past that and calling one another into our destinies, into our abilities, sometimes abilities that we haven't even tapped into. Living as a saint means immersing yourself over and over and over again in the baptism of church life. I'm glad you're excited. 
2 Kings chapter 5 has a great story. Many of you will be familiar with this. It's the story of Naaman and uh, his healing from leprosy. Naaman was one of the leading generals of the Syrian army. And it says that Naaman was greatly loved by the king of Syria, but it also says he was a valiant warrior. So evidently, Naaman was kind of like a, a warrior's warrior. He was a great strategician, probably as a general, a man valued for his integrity, his loyalty. He probably was a brilliant at what he did. But unfortunately, Naaman came down with this disease of leprosy. And if you're familiar with uh, leprosy in, in the old world, you know, back in ancient times, that there's some types of leprosy that are not contagious, but some types are very contagious. And they weren't always able to tell initially. And so when someone came down from leprosy, that was it. They were completely cut off from friends, from family. They would live in leper colonies. They were forbidden to come into most of the cities and villages. I remember, though, in the first times way back in the 80s, I prayed for someone with leprosy. We were in Guadalajara, Mexico, and uh, praying for the sick after the meeting. And a woman comes up, and I literally thought she had just come from a funeral because she was dressed in head to toe from bla in black, a long black dress, black boots. She had a black veil over her face. She had black gloves, and you could see no skin on her whatsoever. And so I said through the interpreter, what would you like prayer for? And she said, I have a skin problem, but I want to know, was it eczema? Was it something else, you know? And she just kept saying it's a skin problem. And finally, you know, she uh, pulled down uh, her gloves, these long gloves that went past the elbow, and she said, I have leprosy. And as I began to pray for her, I felt like the Lord said, put your hands on her hands. And in my heart of hearts, I shot off a quick prayer. Lord, does she have the contagious or the not contagious part? And God being God, his mercy didn't say anything at all. Just said, just pray for her. But they had such a fear over leprosy because some forms are so highly contagious. And that even though the uh, king of Syria loved Naaman, if something didn't happen, he was going to have to get rid of him. And he just did not want to do that. But what happened was Naaman and his wife had a young servant girl who was actually a Hebrew girl who had been captured on a raid into Israel. And this young girl, when she heard her master had come down with leprosy, she said to Naaman's wife, I wish that my master could go to the prophet of Israel and he would be healed of this. Well, she told Naaman, Naaman told the king, and the king said, that's it. So the king sent him with a retinue of men and, you know, loaded with camels and donkeys with all sorts of things like silver and gold and valuable things because he loved this guy and wanted him healed. They came to the king, and the king sent him to Elisha, the prophet. And, uh, you know, he gets there, and it's interesting. Uh, let me just say this. How many of you have ever been part of a church that has not gone the way you wanted it to go. Come on, let's raise a hand. Yeah, most of us. Let's, let's take that into the micro a little bit. How many of you have ever been to a church service and that church service has not gone the way you wanted it to go? Naaman ends up having this church service with the prophet and it does not go the way he wanted it to go. He is this great man, a great man of great, you know, respect and honor in his hometown. He comes to the prophet Elisha. His servants knock on the door, tell the servant of Elisha what's going on. 
Elisha could not even be bothered to get out of bed. He just says, go tell him to go to the Jordan River and to dunk himself in it seven times and he'll be healed. And Naaman, he is angry when the servants pass on the message to him. He's thinking, okay, maybe Elisha's going to be like Moses. He's going to come out with his staff and touch me with his staff, and instantly I'm going to be healed. Or maybe like Elijah, his, his master, he's going to wave his jacket over me, and I'm going to be healed. Or maybe they're going to say, in the name of Jehovah, be healed, and they're going to put a hand upon my head. None of that happens. Elisha can't even be bothered to come to the door. And Naaman's just going to blow this whole thing off, but one of his servants piped up and said, you know, Master, if he told you to do something that was really difficult, like a challenge, you would do this. How much more should you do this simple thing? Naaman, he said, why should I go to the Jordan River? And he said, we have better rivers in Syria. And you know what? Historically, that is true, because at times... The, the, the Jordan River was known to be murky and muddy and not a clear, beautiful river you'd want to jump into on a hot summer day. And they did have far more beautiful rivers in Syria. And he's thinking, why should I jump seven times in this murky, muddy river when we have better rivers? I would like to suggest to you that this is a picture of immersing yourself over and over and over again in the river of church life. Let's be very honest here. Sometimes it appears like certain streams of life in the cultures around us are more attractive than the culture of church life. Come on, I'm just being honest here. Because sometimes we think, you know, man, I had such bad experiences in this past church I was with, or you know, I, I know these people are going to heaven, and, you know, I, I kind of have a, a theology that God loves them, but they're just so weird, to, you know. They, they eat weird foods, and they, they wear, wear weird clothing, you know, all sorts of things. And sometimes these other streams that are out in the world look more attractive to the natural eye. I want to identify four of those streams. One of those streams is the stream I call the stream of self-success. And this is when a Christian says, I love Jesus, and I think I love the church, and church is a good thing. But, you know, I I only have time to go to church maybe (coughs) once a month. I don't have time for a home group. I don't have time to be involved in anything because I've got to get my career going. But here's the problem with that, that success in the world, the goal line constantly changes. It's like someone who says, you know, I just need to be making that fifty or that seventy-five or that $100,000 a year, and as soon as I get there, I can relax a little bit, but as soon as you get to that, it changes to $125 or $150. Or you think, as soon as I climb the corporate level, or as soon as I get that degree, and I'm not saying there aren't certain times of your life that are very demanding that you need to give 100%. Like if you're in, you know, working through an intensive degree in a four- or six-year school, that's something you really need to do for the glory of God. And I'm not saying with your job. You shouldn't do that for the glory of God either. But what I'm saying is the lie is that if we can just achieve enough things out there, that that's going to bring fulfillment. It's not because God created you for relationship. God created you for relationship. 
And, you know, of course, we're to do good to the world as much as we can, but the Bible says do good especially to those of the household of God. This is where the river is. This is where life is. And it's not the externals that are going to bring internal satisfaction. It's the internal satisfaction of not only giving love in a committed relationship, but receiving love in a committed relationship. And just let me say something about committed relationships. Um, Most of the churches I'm involved with, uh, not only nationally in the States, but internationally, do a lot of ministry for the poor, the down, the outcast, all of that, the disenfranchised. And that's a huge part of the kingdom. Where I live at in San Diego, we have a huge homeless uh, population. And there's usually people on a lot of street corners asking for money in the parks and the beaches, all that sorts of things. And I believe that as the Lord leads in giving money, and a lot of times I have to give money or give me an opportunity to pray for somebody. But you know what? When you minister to someone on the street or even giving a bag of groceries, you know, and things like that, chances are you're never going to see that person again. And I'm not saying that's unimportant. It's very important, but it's easy to love somebody that you're never going to see again. It's difficult to love somebody that you're in a growing, committed relationship with. Because after you've known most people for more than just a few days, they're areas of character development. (laughs) Their flaws begin to come out. Nowhere is that more true than a home group. Here is a universal truth in the kingdom of God. No matter what home group you join, there's always going to be one person who really bothers you in that home group. And so you'll stick with that home group for about six months, and then you'll just get so tired of that person, you'll leave that home group and you'll join another home group. Here's the bad news. Their cousin will always be in that home group. It's like church. Sometimes I I meet people at a conference, and, you know, during the coffee break, they'll want to chat up how much they love their church. And then you (laughs) meet them a couple years later, another church in the region, and they'll say, oh, how's your church doing? You talked about how great the worship was in your church last time I talked to you. Oh, I'm no longer going to that church because, yeah, they had good worship, but they just had no room for the prophetic. I'm going to church now that loves the prophetic. So you meet them a couple years later. Oh, how's that prophetic church doing? Oh, well, yeah, that was good, but they really didn't exegete the word. They weren't giving us the meat of the word. Now I'm going to a church that really gives the word. And a year later, they're a different church. Well, you know, yeah, but they didn't have a heart for the poor. And you say to them, well, you know, when are you going to really settle down a church? Well, I'm looking for the perfect church. And I tell them, if you ever find one, don't go there. You're just going to screw it up. (laughs) You see, church is comprised of people. And it's like the old saying, church would be perfect if it weren't for the people who go there. We are all on a journey of consecration and sanctification, which is a theological way of saying we're all on a lifelong journey of learning to unlearn the ways of selfishness and carnality and learning to be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. And what that means is we're called to be in a covenant relationship with one another. We're called to be committed to one another. A second stream that's very popular in the world today I call the stream of social justice. And that's people that say, I identify with this hurting group here, and I'm going to completely give myself over to helping that group of people. But see, here's the problem that although we can give practical help and we can even give social help, 
until we come to the point where we're giving Jesus help, kingdom help to people, spiritual help, we're only solving problems temporarily. It's the difference between a handout and a hand up. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved in social justices. As a church, I believe we're called to be the light of the world in so many areas. But what I'm saying is the ultimate answer for the world is not political issues, and it's not this person's blog, and it's not this person's take. It's Jesus. Jesus is the answer for the world. A third stream that's popular for many Christians I call the stream of politics. And, uh, you know... In Canada, you essentially have one huge sport, and that's hockey. I know you have other sports, but it's hockey. In the States, we have four sports. We have baseball, we have football, we have basketball, and every four years, we have our presidential elections. And that's the one people really get excited about. And I know a lot of Christians, they just get so wrapped up in politics and things like that. And if you're familiar with American politics, and I think that's really the second sport in Canada is making fun of American political politicians. But we have the Democrats, which are the Liberal Party, and their logo is the donkey. And then we have the Republicans, the more conservative, and there is the elephant. And, you know, throughout the election last year, I preached in churches all over the states, and I said, you know, the answer for our country's problems is not donkeys and elephants, but it's Christ and the cross. But having said that, I believe that we are called to be involved in the political process, but we have to understand that is not the ultimate stream the world needs. The ultimate stream is the river of life flowing from Jesus. My second daughter, she is 26 years old. She went to a major university, got a degree in political science, and she is now working in the political and governmental world. She has been on staff for politicians in Washington, D.C. Now she's working in San Diego in a very prestigious job there, but continually rubbing her shoulders with politicians and government leaders. She is called by God to that realm to be a woman of influence for the kingdom of God. And, you know, she's just all over the news. You know, she still lives with us. It's expensive in San Diego. She's saving up to get an apartment. But she gets home from work every day. She wants to put on the TV with all the political stuff. And after a while, I just say, you know, it's just, you know, I just need to slap my ears to knock that stuff out, you know. But my daughter Taylor, even though that's the world of influence, her sphere of influence for her, she also realizes it's the river of life from church that she drinks from. She's a woman of influence within that sphere, but that's not the sphere that influences her, if that makes sense. And so all these things we're to be involved in, but we're to be people of influence in, but this is the river right here of loving one another and learning to be loved. And how many of you know sometimes it's harder to learn to be loved than it is to actually give love? But Naaman's problem was... That little church meeting he was doing with Elisha the prophet was not going the way he thought it should go. So he reluctantly, he goes to the Jordan, and he dunks himself in, baptizes himself once, gets out, nothing's changed. A second time, nothing's changed. A third time, a fourth time, a fifth time, a sixth time, nothing's changed. But when he got out of that river the seventh time, his skin was completely healed. 
You know, it's so easy to look at a preacher, you know, because maybe they are anointed in a certain area and maybe very gifted in an area, to look and say, wow, they must really have their life together. But those of you who have been around your pastor, you know that's not true. (laughs) That preachers, pastors, prophets, evangelists, pastors, you know, we're, we're just like everybody else. We, just, we all have our issues, whatever stuff we grew up with that was dysfunctional, that got intertwined in our souls and all that, and unlearning that. But what has made the difference for me is not just because I have a calling and a ministry, uh, prophetically and otherwise, but it's my relationships. And I have seen over the 45 years now I've known the Lord Jesus, I've seen so much healing come about in the context, especially relationship. I'm a passionate motorcyclist, I believe. When we get to heaven, everybody gets at least two or three motorcycles. It's just written, written in the book of Mark, anyway. But about uh, once a year, uh, not every year, but once a year, most years, we'll do a, a six- or seven-day motorcycle trip, and there'll be anywhere for two to three of us that do sometimes five or six or eight of us that have gone these trips. And, and a lot of the people that go on them are pastors and people in ministry, friends of mine that are passionate about writing, and some, uh, uh, you know, uh, businessmen and things like that that love the Lord, and we all have a good time of fellowship. But uh, one of the things we do when we're on these bike rides, because normally we're in a different hotel two, three, four hundred miles away day by day, is we get our bikes loaded up in the hotel um, parking lot, and we're all ready to go, then we get in a group, and uh, a different one of us gives a five-minute devotion to give us a verse or a theme to think about and pray about as we're writing. And uh, uh, on one of these trips a few years ago, we were on Asheville, North Carolina, and I checked my email on the hotel computer before I came down. We were all packed. And I received an email from a friend of mine in Europe, a guy I've known 25 years, and been a very good friend. We've tracked with him. We've grown together. We've prayed over some really intense things together. And he sent me an email, said, Mark, he said, you know, years ago, I used to have uh, suffer from a problem with pornography. And he said, I've been doing great for about 20 years now. But all of a sudden, he said, I feel like I'm in a battle of my life with temptation. And he said, would you pray for me? And I said, sure. And so when we got down, we had our devotion. I said, listen, guys, I just had this email from a friend of mine in Europe. He's really having to fight temptation in this area. Can we just pray for him? So we shot off a prayer for him. And then one of the pastors that was with us said, well, since we're talking about that, he said, I was just on a ministry trip in a foreign country where they have a lot of uh, just weird stuff on public TV. And he said, I got back from my room in the hotel. Uh, After doing a meeting late at night, I wasn't thinking. I turned on the TV, and there was just this blatant, you know, stuff on there. And he said, uh, he said, I I couldn't take my eyes off for about half an hour. And he said, I've just been racked with guilt since then. And he said, would you all pray for it? And right there in the hotel parking lot, all leathered up, you know, with our our bike gear, you know, we laid hands on him and prayed with him and just had a great breakthrough. And I tell you that story because I believe that as powerful and as important as counseling is, like going to the designated counselor, I believe it's in the context of relationship that God wants to bring healing. And so what I'm saying is our get-togethers, and I'm not saying everything needs to be an intense, you tell me your sins, I'll tell you mine. That can get artificial, can't it? But what I'm saying is we need to develop equity in our relationships so that we can not only celebrate our breakthroughs as we just did with, I'm sorry, what's your name? 
Jesse with his job. We can celebrate those things. But that also, when we're going through battles, you know, David said in the Psalms, when I was quiet about my sin, my body wasted away. But he said, when I brought it out into the light. Jesus said something really interesting to the disciples. He said, you will not see me again until you say, blessed are those who come in the name of the Lord. And I wonder at the time if the disciples thought he was speaking, they were speaking about they would live to see his return. But what we know now is what he was really saying is, you will not really see me until you learn to see me in one another. We all long to have more and more vision of Jesus, whether that comes in a dream or a vision Jesus gives you. We want to be over, overwhelmed by the glory of the Lord. Is that right? About eight of you are excited. But the Lord was actually saying, you will not see me again until you can see me in one another. And when you are gathered together in a meeting like this, an altar call already. I haven't even called out sin yet. (laughs) But, uh, you know, that until we can learn to see Christ in one another, it may be very difficult to catch that perfect vision of Jesus. There is a great testimony of a healing we had in a church in California a number of years ago. Actually, it happened about 12 years ago. I didn't find out about this testimony till about three years ago. I was back in the area doing meetings, and uh, this father and his grown son, about 22, came up to me and said, you won't remember this, but he said, uh, 10 years ago, when my son was 12 years old, We came every night for four nights to meetings you were doing and to get prayer. Uh, And I said, no, I don't remember it. And he said, well, my son was in the top 98 percentile of epilepsy. And he was 12 years old. He'd had it since he was seven, and he was turning into a basket case. Three nights a week, he would have seizures, and he couldn't go to school that day. He couldn't function. And the neurologists were saying he's never going to be able to have a normal life. He's not going to be able to finish school. He's never going to have a normal job, not be able to drive a car. And uh, my wife and I, we've been praying, had been praying for him for years. And we brought him every night to the meetings thinking you would give a word of knowledge about epilepsy, but you didn't do it. And he said, the last night you were walking out the door, and he said, I cornered you with my son. And I said, do you have one more prayer left in you? And he said, what's the problem? And he explained the situation to his son. And he said, you then prayed for my son, but he said, I was quite angry with you because you only prayed about 10 seconds for my son, and then you just walked off. And we actually have the father saying this in the video interview, that I was quite angry with you. And I said to him, well, what did I pray? He said, you prayed in the name of Jesus. I rebuked the spirit of epilepsy and pulled the hooks out of your neurological system and I bless you to be healed. And he just walked off. And he, said to, and he says this in the video interview, after four nights when I should have had my son home in bed because of the seizures, this is all I get. And that's what Naaman was thinking from the prophet. This is all I get. I don't get hands laid on me. But um, this is the testimony that that Friday was her monthly appointment with the neurologist. And that Friday happened to be the first week in five years they'd had no seizures. The neurologist puts the electrodes on the sun, does all the tests to track the brain waves, and the neurologist said, "Um, this is interesting, I'm not seeing any of the normal patterns. 
And the father said, well, uh, something happened to my son Sunday night. He was prayed for in the name of Jesus, and this is the first week he's had no seizures in five years. We believe God has done a miracle. The neurologist was not a Christian, but he, you know, said, well, that would be great, but let's wait a month before we say a miracle has happened. So uh, four weeks later, they go back in. The neurologist did every test he could think of, and the neurologist sat down with the parents afterwards and said, in all the years I've been studying neurological diseases, been treating them, I've never seen anything like this, but it appears like your son is 100% healed. The medication he was on was so strong that it took over two years to slowly wean him off that medication. He learned how to swim after that, and he made the swim team in high school. He made the water polo team. He learned how to surf. And when I met him at 22 years old, he was a United States Marine training young recruits in physical fitness. And the father and his son told me that when he went to sign up for the Marines, when he got out of high school and he filled out the medical history form, the, the recruiter kind of laughs and says, son, I'm glad you want to be a Marine, but we cannot have somebody in a foxhole situation having a, 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 an epileptic seizure. Thanks, but no thanks. But he applied two more times, and finally the neurologist said, here's what I'll do. I'll make an appointment for you to be tested by our marine neurologist, but you need to understand they're going to give you the strictest test possible. And he said, even if you've had a history of having neurological diseases, it's going to show because those things come up in the brain patterns. And when the marine neurologists tested him, they said, not only do you not have epilepsy, but we cannot see a trace that you've ever had it. And we, I, I love this testimony because for a couple of reasons. One, because God usually doesn't do things the way we'd like him to do, and that includes Naaman's church service and sometimes our own church services. But it reinforced to me the understanding that our authority for healing and miracles is not based on the eloquence of our prayers. It's not based on how long they are. It's not based exactly on how theologically perfect they are, although that's important. But it's the name of Jesus. It's the name. That's what Peter said about that miracle in Acts chapter 3. He said, why do you look at me as if we're gods? He said, it is faith in the name of Jesus that has made this man well. And when we come together, not just to pray for one another, but to fellowship together, to eat together, to have fun together in the name of Jesus, there's life in that gathering. I want to close by talking about the authority that comes out of unity. And I'm going to be speaking specifically out of Matthew 18. And what's interesting about Matthew 18 is most of Matthew 18 is talking about dealing with sin in the body of Christ. But in the midst of Matthew 18, starting verse 18, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, say anything, Anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Isn't it interesting? Jesus did not say, where two or more are gathered in my name, I will be upon him or I will be upon her. 
But he said, I will be in your midst. You see, he's a corporate God. He's a family God. But what's interesting, he's giving these words about authority and prayer within the context of dealing with sin in the body of Christ. And right after this, Peter says to Jesus, how many times must I forgive my brother if he sins against me? Seven times? And Jesus said, no, seven times 70. I can imagine Peter thinking, wow, 490. I'm going to have to buy an iPad so I can keep track of all the times John mouths off to me. And when John gets to the 489th time, I'm going to look and say, one more time, I get to smack you up the side of the head. But no, the number 490 was so high that obviously you can't keep track. That's the whole point. But then Jesus launched into a parable, and he said there was a wealthy man that had a servant that owed him in today's money, we'd say maybe $10,000. And he said, pay me the money you owe me. And the servant couldn't pay him, and so the master was going to have him thrown into debtor's prison, which they would, in fact, that still happens in some countries in the world. It happens in uh, uh, Dubai, where I just was a few weeks ago. Fortunately, I didn't go broke there. But... uh, Uh, It says the servant begged for more time, but what's interesting is the master did not just give him more time, completely forgave him of his debt, which is a picture of God the Father forgiving us of our sins. But then that that servant went and found other people who owed him money, not $10,000, not $5,000, not even $500, but like $150. And when they could not pay him the money they owed him, he had them thrown into debtor's prison. It says when the master found out that the one that he'd forgiven was not forgiving others, it says two things happened. One, he grew angry with them, and then he had him thrown into prison and handed over to the tortures. I would like to suggest to you that this is a a prophetic picture of what happens when somebody gives her life to Jesus He is our master, but we might not be experiencing the peace and the joy of the Holy Spirit on a regular basis if we choose to hang on to bitterness and anger and unforgiveness. Of all the sins a Christian can commit, one of the greatest is unforgiveness. Jesus said twice in two of the Gospels, if you do not forgive those who have sinned against you, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you of your sins. And sometimes I hear Christians saying, well, yeah, I know I should forgive them, but they did this against me, or they did that against me, and you don't know what I've lived through. It is true that it's very difficult to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and understand the emotional pain they may have been through, maybe through an abusive marriage or an abusive childhood. But you know what? Jesus, who never sinned, he hung upon that cross, and with great pain, He raised himself up on that peg through his feet to gasp out the words, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. How most people died when they were crucified was from asphyxiation. Their whole diaphragm was so violently stretched out, the only way they could gasp for breath was to raise themselves up on the feet with the pegs through it. It was very painful for Jesus to say those words. And I hear Christians say, well... They deserve justice. You see, a mercy you don't give is a mercy you don't get. And if you really want justice, God will give it to you. Believe me, you don't want justice. 
You want the mercy and grace of the cross. And I actually believe that there's people who are born-again Christians and they're going to heaven, but they're suffering torture in this world and they're actually in a prison, a prison in unforgiveness and bitterness. It says in Hebrews, avoid the entanglement of the bitter root of judgment by which many are defiled. And I've seen in many churches, they may have an anointing for evangelism, they may have anointing or calling for ministering to the poor, they may have great Bible teaching, but I see in many of those church families, they are so dysfunctional because there's a history of ongoing unforgiveness and bitterness in the body of Christ where someone in the church has sinned against you or made a mistake, maybe they've betrayed you, Maybe you shared something in confidence with them when you needed help and they blabbed it out to their 500 friends on Facebook. It could be a number of things. But you see, the measure of love is not when everything's going well. The measure of love is when there's tension and difficulty. Are we going to choose to forgive one another? Are we going to choose to bless one another despite Imperfect behavior. Above all, Peter said in 1 Peter 4.8, above everything, keep fervent in your love for one another. What that means is even more than regarding prophecy, even more than regarding great theology, even more than regarding healing and miracles, above everything else, keep fervent in your love for one another. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't mean it does away with problems, but it gives us a context for dealing with those issues. You, if you have not yet been, you will be betrayed by the Christians. It happened to Jesus. It will happen to you. You will be hurt by the Christians. The other Christians are going to make promises to you, and then they're going to fail to live up to some of those promises. I'm not saying it's going to happen all the time, but it will happen. There will be some uh, people that will, you look at them, how they deal with you, how they deal with others, say, how can they even call themselves a Christian? But yet, God himself tells us, above everything else, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. We don't love one another because we deserve it. We love one another because we are in this covenant relationship in Christ Jesus. Let's stand. Here's what I'd like to do. Um, I want to go into a brief time of of ministry, and I just want to give opportunity, like what they used to talk about in the old days, uh, let's do business with God. And, uh, you know, uh, maybe your problem is with someone that you're actually very close to, like your husband or wife. After 34 years of marriage, I can actually say my wife and I, we never fight, but we do have moments of intense fellowship. (laughs) The problem is there's some marriages that there's too much intense fellowship going on all the time. And uh, it could be... A family member could be a mother or father that maybe didn't know how to love you the way they should have loved you. Maybe it was in a former church. Maybe a a pastor was abusive and uh, how he treated you. Or maybe someone in a church betrayed trust. Maybe you've had a Christian business partner 
that ripped you off, that lied to you. Maybe you've come out of a very difficult marriage where a so-called Christian husband or wife cheated on you or betrayed you somehow. But uh, my whole point in being with you this weekend is uh, I feel like God is just really wanting to launch your church into a new season, as I've shared the last two nights, of prophetic innovation, prophetic creativity, and a time of reinvesting. You know, I can't remember who it was, but I remember way back in the 70s, and I'm not a, I'm not a fan of 70s music, many stretch of the imagination, but for the past six months, I have not been able to get my line, uh, this line from this old 70s song out of my mind that goes like this. It's harvest time in the field of opportunity again. And uh, there's some of you here that may be in business, some of you in ministry, some of you maybe even in relationships. God is calling you to reinvest in those things, even maybe where you've had bankruptcy or failure or problems in the past. It's a new season. But here's what you don't want. You don't want to try to run the race of this new season, but have the ball and chain of anger and bitterness from the past holding you into the last season. And so um, I don't want to give, I want to give this invitation without any shame, any condemnation. And I would just put it this way. We're all uh, a people that are learning to grow up in the ways of Christ. We all make mistakes, but we're all learning to be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. So this is not an invitation for condemnation. It's not to embarrass anybody or shame anybody. It's just together as a family saying it's a new season. And if there are strongholds of unforgiveness, bitterness, anger, judgment we've had towards other Christians or a mother or father or former spouse, we want to be free of that. And so without any condemnation, uh, if you know in your heart of hearts that you're carrying around some anger, bitterness, unforgiveness, and one of the ways you know you have unforgiveness is if you can't get rid of this tape recorder in your mind over and over and over again of what somebody did to you, then uh, that's a good indicator that there's a problem. And so uh, if you know in your heart of hearts that there's things you need to be free of, I want to invite you to come to the front right now because we're going to deal with it and we're going to, it's time to move on. Okay, what I'd like to do is I'd like to ask uh, everybody, not just the people who came forward, but everybody, could we pray as a church here? Would you just close your eyes and hold your hands out to the Lord? And as we're praying and holding our hands out to the Lord, we're not just giving the problem away, but we're receiving forgiveness and restoration to step into a new place. So I want to ask everybody, not just the people who came forward, but everybody here, would you pray out loud after me? Father God, I want my heart to be a resting place for your spirit. I don't want anything from the past that quenches your spirit, that grieves you, that is a wall between me and the body of Christ. I don't want anything like that to be in my life. Father, search my heart. And you know if I have bitterness or anger towards another. In the name of Jesus, I ask your forgiveness.
I repent and I ask that you would do a new work in my soul and allow me to see that person who hurt me through your eyes that even though they hurt me they were a victim as well so right where that person's at Father would you bless them would you forgive them of their sins would you draw them close to you would you bless the relationships their health their soul their finances draw them close to you and I say in the name of Jesus I give them the gift of forgiveness and I give myself the gift of forgiveness Father would you forgive me for my anger and bitterness and I let go of it now and would you begin to fill me now with your kingdom your righteousness peace and joy in the holy spirit and would you begin to renew my thinking so rather than to be quick to take offense i can be quick to forgive and i say i'm taking hold of your word that above all above everything i will be fervent in my love for one another because your love covers a multitude of sins now just allow the spirit of god to rest upon you just allow the spirit of god the righteousness peace and joy of the holy spirit to fill you right now and i just prophetically say over you it's a new season it's a new day and i bless you to know that even if you come in contact tomorrow with that person who may have hurt you may have wounded you god's going to give you a grace to see them differently and to speak to them differently maybe than you have in a long long time In the New American Standard translation of the Bible in Psalm 149 it says that God beautifies the afflicted ones with salvation. God beautifies the afflicted ones with salvation. So turn to the person next to you and say you're better looking than you were a few hours ago. Amen. Just stay right where we are. Don't run anywhere yet. just uh, so, so many good things spoken there so many great things for church life and so many things we could probably emphasize but i want to encourage you with this that uh the evidence that you love jesus is you love one another and your love for jesus cannot exceed your love for one another and so that's why if if you can't handle being around God's children uh you're really not going to enjoy heaven either and so one of the things that God is doing is is bringing light to that through the christian life through walking with people who are imperfect 
through walking with people who are different. And God is increasing your capacity for love. And I want to encourage you, don't, please do not avoid this part of the journey. So many other parts are superfluous, really. This, this is the one essential commodity that must increase in our lives. And it's, it must increase in the context of the, of the family. It's easy to love that personality on TV, that, that you know, music person, that see, person you see twice a year. <laughs> that is no proof of any love. It's the people that are right next to you. Your kids, your brother, your sister, your husband, your wife, people across the pew. And uh, so, so, Father, I just want to seal this moment by saying, Lord, we, we want to enter a new chapter uh, of kingdom life, kingdom love, that the world would really say, you are his disciples. Father, I pray that that would manifest in our midst. We long... You would perfect that which you began in us, in Jesus' name, amen.